0: Hey everyone, it's, you guessed it, Robin Upsall, politics reporter here with the Des Moines Register. This is the last episode of Three Tickets, the Register's podcast about the Iowa caucuses before the actual caucus. It's about how the caucuses have changed through the years. I promise, it's more than just people talking about how the caucuses aren't how they used to be. It talks about how advances in technology campaigning, and more have made the caucuses and their outcomes shift over the past few cycles. Whether it's been for better or worse, well, I'll leave that for you to decide. Let's get right into it.
1: When you talk to Iowans about their experiences with and their perceptions of the presidential caucuses, there's a good chance you'll detect a very noticeable contradiction. They'll tell you the Iowa caucuses are a wonderful beautiful, pure, and innocent exercise of grassroots democracy. But, they might add in the next breath, they sure ain't like they used to be. The caucus's great virtue lies in how they force candidates to meet voters up close and make their case for the presidency in interpersonal, human terms. But to hear Iowans tell it, that central virtue has been under threat for decades. By the 24-7 news media by big-time political consultants, by focus groups and polls, by TV ads, and by all that money. There's no question that the caucuses have evolved to keep up with those developments. The history of the Iowa caucuses is a story of constant change, but also, I think, reassuring continuity. Don't believe the cynics. Even in the era of Twitter, the essence of the caucuses endures. This is 3 Tickets. The final episode of 3 Tickets. The Des Moines Register's podcast of Iowa Caucus's history and culture. I'm Jason Noble.
2: Coming up next on C-Span, we take you live to Iowa.
0: Iowa. <laughs> Hello, Iowa.
3: In the state of Iowa,
0: I'm back.
3: I love Iowa a whole lot. Tomorrow, Iowa!
1: In this series, we're meeting the people and hearing the stories behind Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses, the pretty amazing but sort of absurd political contests that have inaugurated the presidential nominating process for the last five decades. This episode is all about change and continuity in the caucuses. And it just so happens that I found one guy whose experience almost perfectly sums up that decades-long evolution. His name is Joe Trippi. That's what I'm saying. I'll, overall, I love the place. And no, Trippi is a political consultant whose resume encompasses everything from a couple of San Jose City Council races in the 1970s to Good Luck Jonathan's 2011 presidential campaign in Nigeria. He's a Democrat, but even in Democratic circles, he's got a bit of a reputation. One source I talked to called him a mad scientist. Another referred to him skeptically as this trippy character. I met him one morning at a Hyatt hotel in Washington. When I found him, he was pacing around the lobby, talking excitedly into the biggest cell phone I've ever seen. Over a span of about 30 years, Trippy played a role in five Iowa caucuses. And without even meaning to, he told me three stories illustrating how the caucuses have changed and how they haven't over the decades. For Trippy, it all starts with Ted Kennedy's candidacy in 1980.
4: Uh, First experience would have been uh, November of uh, 1979, uh, uh, headed out to uh, uh, Iowa, uh, ran uh, Jones County, Iowa, for Senator Kennedy uh, in the insurgent race against uh,
1: Carter. Trippy was a lowly organizer for a single county on a campaign that ultimately got crushed on caucus night. But his stories out of Jones County are exemplary of the early Iowa caucuses campaign. Well, back
4: then, and I, I mean maybe in still some parts of Iowa, back then if uh, the caucus was going to be held in some of these small towns, held in a private residence. Uh, sometimes there isn't a whole lot else. There isn't a public building. Uh, Now, we've Uh, talked about this before. uh,
1: Usually caucuses are held at libraries or schools or community centers. But in the absence of such a public space, they can be held at someone's house. That evokes a very Norman Rockwell image, doesn't it? A rural farmhouse opening its doors on a cold winter night for the good of democracy. Sure, but what if the farmer living there supports Jimmy Carter? And you're trying to turn out people for Ted Kennedy. That's exactly the problem that cropped up for Joe Trippi in Jones County. One of the rural precincts was hosted at the home of an old farmer named Jimmy Hogan. And Hogan was a Carter man.
4: You know, people wouldn't go to the caucus if they knew, you know, Jimmy's house is, you know, it's Jimmy's house we're all going to and he's for Carter.
1: Uh, it was not the neighborly, polite thing to do. It wasn't. A big part of Trippi's organizing effort then was simply convincing Hogan to welcome Kennedy people into the caucus. You know, you often
4: had to get the uh, try to get the the place where the caucus was going to be held. Get that person, in this case Jimmy Hogan, to to put out the word. It was okay to come to his place if you were against his guy. Some wouldn't do that because they don't want a whole bunch of Kennedy people showing up. But right. and it wasn't and as simple as Reagan just asking. Roden, milked his cows um, to try to get permission to come to the caucuses and, and you know, wait. And what? Right. But Jimmy did after, like, I milked his cows for a couple weeks. He finally, I guess, you thought I yourself. did, yeah, proved myself, had done enough penance, and uh, and he would, uh, he would, get, uh, would, would uh, put the word out, and
1: that made things a lot easier. You heard that right. In the winter of
3: 1980,
1: Joe Trippi had to milk an old Jones County farmer's cows to win permission for Kennedy supporters to attend the Iowa caucuses. Let that sink in. I related this to a colleague in the newsroom, and he warned me not to overreport the story, by which he meant, don't go looking for the facts, because they might get in the way of a great story. Still, I had to know, could this be true? With some help from the current Jones County Democratic Chairwoman, I turned up a James F. Hogan in rural Monticello, and I gave him a call. I'm reach James Hogan.
0: This is Jim Hogan.
1: Jim, my name is uh, Jason Noble. I'm a reporter with the Des Moines Register. Success! Was, was your father also Jim Hogan?
3: Yes, he was GMT, yep.
1: Yeah. And, and was he involved in, in Democratic uh, politics and the caucuses in the, the 70s and 80s? Yes, he was. Okay, uh, great. Turns out Jim the Younger, and America. most of the Hogans today, are Republicans? They split with the Democratic Party over abortion, but his dad was indeed a loyal, albeit conservative Democrat, who hosted a caucus in his home in 1980. I told him Trippy's story, and he was skeptical.
3: <laughs> well, I can't imagine that he would have told somebody they couldn't come. He would, but, but he uh, might have given him a hard time. Yeah. I mean, he, according to
1: him, he had to to come to the farmhouse and milk the cows for a couple of weeks in order to, to finally get the okay.
3: Well, I wouldn't argue with him, but I think that's probably exaggerated. <laughs> Did you guys have uh, dairy cows? Yeah, we had dairy cows at the time. My, my brother was milking them. But.
1: Hey, that's proof enough for me. The younger Jim Hogan told me he was living just down the road and farming with his father in 1979 and 1980. He's sure he attended that caucus, although he doesn't recall it specifically. He said he does remember Ethel Kennedy coming by for tea one day and a group of Kennedy supporters trying to make their case in the Hogan family kitchen. Yeah,
3: yeah I, can remember. <laughs> I can remember some of uh, uh, Kennedy's Kennedy supporters, or people that came along
0: with him, standing in the kitchen, and I was there. And um, they thought that, that Carter could, could uh, order bombers to come over Iowa and bomb us and we'd still be for him.
3: <laughs> I can remember that comment.
1: <laughs> like I said, Carter crushed Kennedy in the 1980 caucuses, taking 59% of the delegates. Kennedy even lost in Jones County, although Trippie says he beat expectations. Regardless of the result, you can tell talking to Trippie that those months in Iowa were a formative experience for him.
4: Learning, I mean I remember my car going off the road uh, in a snow, in a snowstorm and I, I walked up is my first this is with Kennedy and I I went and knocked on the farmer's door uh, of the farmhouse you know the closest to where I went into into the ditch and you know he got his chapter out and he hauled my car out of the out of the snowbank and, and put it up back on the road. And the whole way, he was asking me what I was doing, and mm-hmm. I told him I was for Kennedy. And, you know, by the end of the hour of pulling the car out and everything, you know, I'd, I'd had his name and his phone number, and, and he was telling me, you know, how he might go to the caucus for Kennedy. Uh, I seemed like such a good kid. And, uh, and so that was, like, my first experience with how um, remarkable Iowans are Neighborly and, 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 and all that, but also how the one-on-one communication um, was so important. And I, you know, I, I often joke about you know from that point on, you know how could I put my car into a ditch so I'd have an excuse to talk to another farmer right. about Ted Kennedy? But I mean, there is some of that. I mean, that it was a big lesson for me um, to you know that that that, that day. And milk in the calving to milk Jimmy Hogan's cows. I mean, there was, there, there really is a camp.
1: Let's jump forward to the 1988 campaign and the next evolutionary step in the caucuses. 1988 was one of the most wide-open and dynamic races the caucuses have ever seen, with competitive contests for both parties and no obvious frontrunners. Trippy was working for Dick Gephardt, the congressman from Missouri. Also in the Democratic field were Michael Dukakis, Paul Simon, Jesse Jackson, Bruce Babbitt, a very young Al Gore, and for a time, Gary Hart and a guy named Joe Biden. Gephardt was a labor Democrat from a neighboring state, a profile that made him look like a good fit for the Iowa precinct caucuses. Uh, Well, I mean, Gephardt was, he was everywhere. I mean, he
4: worked, I mean, he lived in the state for years. His whole family lived in the state. His kids lived there. They were all knocking on doors, and the campaign was very grassroots-oriented. Uh, uh, but we were dead last with a, about a month left to go. We, after the Bible of caucus history,
1: Hugh Weinbrenner and Dennis Goldford's book, The Iowa Precinct Caucuses, reports that Gephardt spent 148 days campaigning in Iowa, the equivalent of about five months. That's a caucus record to this day. Gephardt's mother, famously, had even taken an apartment in Des Moines. And yet, he was going nowhere.
4: We, after spending years there, we were at seven points in the uh, Des Moines Register poll. Um, I mean, I remember Mike Duffy of Time Magazine sitting me down uh, over a drink and asked me when, when at the day that poll came out, when Gephardt was going to get out of the race because he'd been there for years and was
1: dead last with weeks to go. Why, you know, why? But Gephardt didn't get out of the race. Instead, he took the race to TV. Where TV was probably the most important thing we did that in that campaign. That? Eight years after Joe Trippi began his Iowa caucus career, literally milking cows on behalf of Ted Kennedy, he produced a television ad to save Dick Gephardt's candidacy the Hyundai ad.
3: They work their hearts out every day, trying to turn out a good product at a decent price. Then the Korean government slaps on nine separate taxes and tariffs. And when that government's done, a $10,000 Chrysler K car costs $48,000 in Korea. It's not their fault we can't sell our cars in a market like that, and I'm tired of hearing American workers blame for it. I've been criticized for my trade policy for saying it's time to open up markets push down trade barriers like those Korean taxes and tariffs. The Gephardt Amendment calls for six months of negotiation. If that doesn't work and I'm president, we have to walk away from that table. The Koreans will know two things. They'll know that we'll still honor our treaties to defend them because that's the kind of country we are. But they'll also be left asking themselves, how many Americans are going to pay $48,000 for one of their Hyundais? It's your fight too. Vote, volunteer, contribute.
1: It really doesn't even sound all that impressive now, does it? And I can tell you it's not much to look at either. It has exactly the production values you'd expect from a political TV ad made in 1987. But it was the right message history, at the right time. It should be anyway. I mean, it was an ad that uh, really
4: uh, explained Gephardt's trade policy in a very visceral way, particularly to auto workers and Iowans, they got it when they saw that ad. Uh, and it caught fire. And man, it was amazing because in a matter of a week or two, we went from dead last to first place, catapulted
1: past uh, Paul Simon and Mike Dukakis. It's important to remember that running TV ads was a big gamble in the caucuses no one had really done it prior to 1988 because it's frankly an expensive and inefficient way to reach caucus goers. When you go on TV in Iowa, you're paying to reach 3 million people, of which only about 125,000 actually turned out for the Democratic caucuses in 1988. But do you know what happened next? Dick Gephardt won the Iowa caucuses, taking 31% of the delegate equivalents in that crowded field. I'll be the first to tell you that Iowa's great virtue is its grassroots, person-to-person political environment. But Gephardt in 1988 proved that mass media matters too, and it can be a game-changer. That 31% share of the delegates, by the way, was 4.5 points better than U.S. Senator Paul Simon in second place. Michael Dukakis, who went on to win the nomination, took third. Trippi's still upset about that.
4: Um, And that's another one, though, where... Dukakis goes out and says he won the bronze and somehow got away with that. You know, yeah. you know, it's like, what? You know, <laughs> dude, we just came from last place and won. And, and we got a big lift out of that. I don't mean that, but it was like kind of like, wait, how's the guy in third get the press to fall for that?
1: Joe Trippy turned up in Iowa 16 years later just in time to kick off the next revolution in political campaigning. But this time it was his campaign manager for Howard Dean, the Vermont governor who surged at the front of the Democratic pack in the 2004 race as an anti-war outsider. Dean's campaign fell apart even before he left Iowa, and he'll always be remembered for his famous scream. <laughs> but his true legacy in presidential politics is as the herald of the Internet age. Dean was the first presidential candidate to seize on the internet as a tool for raising money and organizing support. And for a while, it looked like it might work. Trippy oversaw the whole thing.
4: Uh, well, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we, no one was going to give us money, uh, not any of the traditional party sources. Those were all, uh, all that was going to John Kerry or Dick Gephardt, my old boss from, from 1988, um, you know, or John Edwards... Uh, uh, you know, so we had to invent a new, new way to connect to people and, uh, and we did it on the internet. And, uh
1: Dean tapped into liberal angst over the Iraq war and frustration with the party establishment, many of whom had supported the resolution authorizing the war. Dean said he represented the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. That was a message aimed at the grassroots and in early 2003... It made him an internet sensation. His website made it easy for supporters to donate to his cause, and they gave more than anyone thought Clinton's was possible in 2003. I mean,
4: Bill Clinton had set the quarterly record, quarterly record for a Democrat for president at 10 million dollars, and that wasn't when he ran in '92. That was when he ran for reelection as the sitting president in '96. We demolished that and raised 15 million in the
1: uh, in one eight-day period in the summer of 2003. Supporters gave $2.8 million to the Dean campaign, and $2 million of that was raised online. Trippy writes in his book that the average donation was around 100 bucks. One woman told the campaign that she sold her bicycle for $75 and gave that money to Howard Dean. The Dean campaign found that the Internet could be a great tool not just for raising money, but also for organizing. They created printable campaign signs personalized for all 50 states in Puerto Rico and saw them downloaded 87,000 times just in the first day. They announced their events on a growing website called meetup.com and soon were drawing crowds of thousands in places like Seattle and New York City. Dean supporters who had no connection whatsoever to the formal campaign were finding each other on meetup.com and coalescing into something that looked like a political movement. That all sounds pretty great, right? Joe Trippy believed it was literally revolutionary. He wrote a book afterward called The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, which describes a new internet-based utopia of people-powered grassroots politics. But here's one problem. A campaign built and maintained online only really works in places where the internet is fast, reliable, and universal. And that sure didn't describe the state of Iowa in 2003. Facebook. So in a
4: very nascent internet, political internet era, and we were pioneering, um, you know, Iowa was even a more remote outpost than, than most other
1: places. So Iowans were in fact just a tiny fraction of Dean's internet army, which is a problem when Iowa is where the first battle is fought.
4: If I remember right, we had 650,000 people identified nationwide as you know supporters who had volunteered or given money or uh, pledged support in terms of time or resources. And I think something like 2,500 of them, maybe it was 2,700 of them, were in Iowa. Wow.
1: That weakness so, became evident as campaign. the campaign progressed I mean, in late 2003. Even the modest Meetup.com organization that Dean appeared to have in Iowa turned out to be a paper tiger. Political reporter Jeff Zeleny told me about a story he wrote for the Chicago Tribune, checking in on Dean's organization.
5: He was advertising that he was doing meetups in all 99 Iowa counties on a certain Tuesday night at 7 Uh o'clock. And on their website, they had a list of all the places that... So we had six reporters from the Chicago Tribune who were in... In the state, This was probably November or December mm-hmm. of '03, ni- of And so we just all fanned out and went to one of them. And only one out of the six actually had an event there. Oh, so wow. the one we actually wrote about was from Atlantic, from Cass County. And the guy, the restaurant was closed. The owner of the restaurant said he'd never heard, you know, no one ever asked him about it. So the Dean campaign um, was kind of trying to show that they were, um, had this big organization, but it just did not... Um, sort of match their bluster. Right. And Dean's point, candidacy fell apart in the final weeks of the Iowa
1: campaign for reasons that go beyond the shortcomings of his Internet-based organizational effort. He got too big too fast, raising expectations and making himself a target. His opponents started hammering him, and his support drifted away. Trippi acknowledges that as readily as anyone.
4: You know, things I did and the campaign did to get us into the position, I wish we had, I mean, if I could, you know, if you could make it all happen after, you know, now in hindsight, just a little slower up to the top, you know, so that we'd, we'd, you know, they'd only have a week to try to stop us in Iowa. We'd win it, and then the momentum would keep going. Um,
1: But even as Howard Dean's experience in Iowa revealed the limits of the political Internet in 2003... It absolutely foreshadowed its potential for campaigns to come. Here's Zeleny again.
5: I would say the 2004 caucus cycle was the transition from, you know, the, um, you know, the brick and mortar to kind of the um, more modern day electronic caucuses in terms of how campaigns organized. '04 was definitely, I think, you know, the final um, kind of old school. Um, system of the Iowa caucuses. Trippy isn't
1: exactly modest about his role in this shift. No, I mean, look, there's no doubt we changed
4: everything. I mean, we were, I keep saying we were the Wright brothers and the Obama campaign was the Apollo project. I mean, we were the Wright brothers was doing it with, you know, you know, with this little dinky propeller and a, you know, and, and,
1: and a little bit better than a rubber band. To continue this story of change and continuity in the Iowa caucuses, I want to bring in another voice, Sue Dvorsky. Dvorsky is a retired school schoolteacher and a political activist and by way of the
2: Teachers Union. We, had, we used to have a saying that all, all decisions that are educational decisions are political decisions. Um, that's really how I came into my political thing. It was through my classroom. It was through. From
1: 2010 I just, to 2013, she was chairwoman of the Iowa Democratic Party. So that means she's got a great perspective on how the caucuses have changed in recent years, and how they'll never change. She comes from Johnson County, home of the University of Iowa and one of the most ardently Democratic counties in the state. And she describes herself as a habitual supporter of insurgent campaigns. She got started with Paul Simon in 1988, worked for Bill Bradley in 2000, and Dick Gephardt in 2004. She was recruited early in 2007 to Barack Obama's campaign, seeing in him another inspiring insurgent. At a big early rally on the University of Iowa campus in April 2007, Dvorsky and the Obama people just took down people's names on clipboards. But it became clear early on that technology would take on a greater role in the 2008 caucus campaign. Now remember, YouTube launched in 2006, And the first iPhone came out in 2007. An internet that delivered video and existed on mobile devices emerged in that period between Howard Dean's candidacy and Barack Obama's, opening up entirely new opportunities in the process. But what the Obama campaign grasped, that Trippi and the Dean campaign hadn't, was that all this new technology wouldn't actually change the fundamental requirements for organizing support in the caucus. It just made those organizational efforts easier, more efficient, more effective. Sue explained to me the old practice of throwing the deck. That is, taking a deck of index cards printed with voters' names and addresses, organizing them by precinct, putting them in walking order, and then taking notes on the cards from the conversations you had on the doorstep.
2: That conversation's been the same conversation since... You know, Ben Franklin was doing this in Philadelphia. What's changing is the real-time nature. Like, what do you do with that data then? Because it was always... The
1: revolution of the last 10 or 15 years then has been the ability to turn those jotted-down notes into usable data points integrated with a much broader picture of an individual voter's views
2: and motivations. You you get the nuances of it, you get the particulars of it, and we have the ability to store those conversations. Mm-hmm. So if I'm given a call... If I'm given a call list, I can look at that call list and I know exactly when the local field organizer last talked to that person. I know that that person's mom might have just... gone into the home. I know that that person just got back from vacation. I know that that person was away because he or she was bringing their first kid to college, and I know where that college is. That kind of thing is capturable now and really good, but it takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. It takes a huge commitment to field, and then it takes a commitment to use that data. There's no reason to collect it if you're not using it.
1: Dvorsky says the technology is accelerating. She told me the caucuses changed more between 2008 and 2012 than they had in the entire period dating back to 1976. Each state party executive director she's worked with, from Ryan Hawkins to Norm Sterzenbach, has confronted a new set of technology to work with.
2: I mean, I remember... You know when they first gave field organizers palm pilots, and that was a big stinking deal, and it was the Democratic Party who did it, and it was I think Ryan Hawkins was maybe the ED then, and you know out in the out in the counties we were all like, ooh, that's really you know super cool, and then when I was chair and we're cleaning out the office because Norm and I just decided you know one weekend, okay, my God, this is it, and we're hauling the boxes of palm pilots out, and there's not even anybody to give them to. There's literally no one to give them to. No one wants them. Um, And that was like two cycles.
1: The point is, technology comes and goes. We get new devices and we use new platforms. And when they become obsolete, they're replaced with newer devices, newer platforms. But in Iowa, they're almost always used in the service of engaging voters and connecting with them in a personal way. In more than 40 years of Iowa caucus campaigning... (laughs) That hasn't changed.
2: The conversation's the same. It's neighbor to neighbor. It's um, the good ones are that neighbor to neighbor. What what concerns you? What do you need to see happen for your family? And here's what my candidate can do about that, or says he or she'll do about that.
1: That's all I've got on change and continuity in the Iowa caucuses. But while I've got this Joe Trippi audio queued up, should we maybe talk about the dean scream? (laughs) The scream is an absolutely iconic moment in the history of the caucuses. One of those clips that will forever be associated with the presidential contest here. But it also, and forgive me if I'm reaching a little here, relates to the media and the candidates' use of technology. Dean's supporters in the room that night swear it was a microphone that made all the difference in how the world perceived that moment. The scream happened on caucus night, January 19, 2004. After, it must be noted, the caucus campaign was over and the results were in. Dean held his victory party at the Valair Ballroom in West Des Moines. Except when the results were announced, there was no victory to celebrate. He got creamed placing a distant third with 18% of the delegates, while John Kerry won 37.6%, and John Edwards took second with 319 Dean got up to speak, no suit jacket, sleeves rolled up, looking buoyant and still confident. The CNN video shows a crowd behind him, including U.S. Senator Tom Harkin and a bunch of people on you know Union t-shirts.
3: You know something? If you had told us one year ago that we were gonna come in third in Iowa, We would have given anything for that. And you know something? You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah!
1: That scream is pretty abrasive, isn't it? But should we blame that on Dean? Or on TV? Here's Trippy.
4: No one who was in that room thought anything out of the ordinary happened. You could not hear him. The room was that loud. That place had 3,000 screaming, crazy, jazzed Dean uh, uh, supporters and they were roaring I mean like i would never seen losing a, a campaign and I mean usually there's no one at the, vic- at the quote victory party and the ones that are, are like just sitting there looking at their shoes and like total silence right this was like people like you know just uh, 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 I mean just the roar of that crowd you couldn't hear him so, if you were in the room, like I was at the back, yeah. or with the press at the back, it just looked like, wow, they're not giving up. You know, yeah. wow, they're, you know, going on. And of course, he's yelling yeah. in, or screaming so they can hear him. Right. But no matter how loud he screams, they can't hear him. Right. Uh, and they roar louder and he screams louder. So, yeah. you know, you got. There
1: is know, some, some visual evidence for this. You can see Harkin standing behind Dean at the moment of the scream, and he doesn't recoil in horror. Rather, he actually stops clapping and pumps his fist with excitement. In the moment, you can see the scream was entirely appropriate. The problem was that microphone in Howard Dean's hand, the one running to a malt box and feeding his voice into the TV cameras that were broadcasting the scene out on national television. That was a unidirectional microphone and it wasn't capturing that crazy jazzed crowd of Dean supporters.
4: If you were watching on TV, that mic did not pick up the crowd noise. The TV stations were not pumping the crowd noise into the on TV. In other words, they they were just hey, you know, they were sitting there with the microphone, and so all you get is this guy who's screaming. I mean, who's who's you know yelling with no crowd, essentially no crowd noise, not like what was really
1: happening in the room. Now I've talked to people who stage political events and know about these kinds of audio-video issues, and they say essentially the same thing. It really was the mic, or the overall amplification setup, that made the scream sound so ludicrous. Still, it sounded ludicrous, and it was replayed endlessly in all its ludicrous glory. (laughs) on cable TV in the following days and was a running Ah! joke on the late night shows. Dean placed second in New Hampshire eight days later, and he quit the race a few weeks after that. According to Trippy, the scream was significant and ultimately fatal because it reinforced an existing negative perception so can of get Dean. Into
4: all, I mean, you can get into all these after the fact: who uh-huh. shot John? And yeah. but you know, the, you know, the reality is, yeah, there was a caricature of Howard Dean that he was bombastic, and you know, it's and the other campaigns were saying like, you, you know, he's he's uh, he's too radical, he's too you know, and then at the same time, and then you give them. You give them the ammo, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what president. That's what running for president's about. You don't give them the ammo, right. and if you do, you
1: ride out the s- storm. And Joe Tribbitt's been a part of yeah, five right. Iowa caucuses. Like, he even came back and did it again after the Dean campaign. And every time it's over. He tells himself the same I mean, thing. I me, I could say the same
4: thing about Iowa, and I could say the same thing about the entire presidential experience. At the end of every presidential campaign I've ever been involved in, and at the end of every caucus campaign, I can honestly tell you and have said, wow, that was the greatest experience of my life. And the very next se- sentence would be, please, God, don't ever let me do that again.
1: I'm Jason Noble, and this is the Des Moines Register's Three Tickets podcast.
0: There's not too much to add here. Sue Dvorsky worked for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign at the Women's Engagement Director for both the caucuses and the general election. She decided to endorse U.S. Senator Kamala Harris and work with her campaign in the 2020 cycle. As of December 2019, after Harris left the race, Dvorsky has not endorsed another candidate. Before we end, I want to make sure I thank everyone who helped us with this episode of Three Tickets. Thank you first and foremost to Katie Aiken, the producer of this episode. Thank you also to Rachel Stassenberger, politics editor at the Des Moines Register, Paige Windsor, our news director, and Carol Hunter, the paper's executive editor.